Genesis chapter 50 were there. I checked. It's two weeks shy of four years since we started the book of Genesis. Does it seem like four years? Now, we took some breaks in there. We took a break, and we did Galatians, and we took a break, and we did Luke. But it's been four years since we started the book. Um, in two weeks, it'll be exactly four, four years. Um, I just can't believe we're at the end. Now, since we're at the end, I feel like I have to restate one more time what the, the themes of the book are, because what we're going to see in chapter 50 is Moses is going to draw those themes together for us and reinforce them for us again. So the two important things, if you remember, my, my theory is after the golden calf incident, Moses realized he had a problem with the people, that they had a theological problem. They didn't understand who their God was, and they didn't understand who they were. They thought their God was like one of the Egyptian gods, that he was a territorial God, that he could be appeased uh, through, through uh, rituals, that he could be imitated in the form of a calf. They didn't understand who their God was, but also they didn't understand who they were. They thought they were slaves because for who knows how many generations in Egypt, they had been slaves. And so that was their understanding. That was their, their identity of who they were. So Moses, to address this theological issue with them, says, I need to write you the story of our beginnings. And so the way the book of Genesis starts, that first 11 chapters covers countless centuries in 11 chapters. And there can only be one person who's the star of that long of a time period, and that's God. So that first section of Genesis is all about God, who God is. And then the next portions are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then we're in Joseph. And each one of those talks about God's covenant with his people, that he has chosen a people out of the world. Through Abraham, he established a covenant. Through Isaac and Jacob, he transmitted the covenant. And now in Joseph, he's explaining to the covenant people, how did you wind up in Egypt? And who are you as a people? So those are the kind of the broad themes of the book of Genesis, and we're seeing those flow right into chapter 50. Moses is going to bring those up again, and he's going to remind us of them. Now, when you hear something about teaching those kind of theological concepts, we're used to thinking in terms of an epistle, where Paul says these particular things. He writes truths in a, in a, in a statement form. But the book of Genesis is narrative. So Moses is going to teach this this morning these great truths by telling stories. And I think sometimes as us Westerners, our Western thinking, we can get uncomfortable with that because we, we really appreciate epistles. Let's go to Romans, and we can do Romans, but what do we do with narratives? But I got news for you folks. Most of the Bible is narrative. So we got to figure out something to do with it. So what we're going to see this morning is, is Moses is going to teach us again. He's going to remind us who God is, and he's going to remind us who we are. And he's going to do it in three sections, three, three chunks of stories, basically. The first one is about God's covenant. The second one is about God's rule. And then the final one is about God's faithfulness. And he's going to teach us those things in story form. So work with me on this a little bit. Um, we've got to think a little differently than we're accustomed. So this first section... Uh, which is up through verse 14, is all about Jacob's burial. Now, you remember at the end of last chapter, Jacob died. He blessed his sons, and then he pulled his feet up into his bed, and he breathed his last, and he died in, in peace. He, he was gathered to his family, or his, his uh, fathers, as they said, and uh, he died in faith, trusting the Lord. So what happens next is this lengthy, detailed narrative of how they went and they buried Jacob. 
Um, what's that got to do with God's covenant? We'll see that in a minute. What happens here is Joseph goes to Pharaoh. Joseph's the most important guy or the most powerful guy in Egypt, but he's not the top guy. He still has to go to his boss and say, is it okay if I take some leave? I need to go bury my father. So it kind of reminds you, you're, he's, they haven't taken over, but they're in a very honored position. And so they go, and did you hear the list of people who went with him to bury his father? The elders of Pharaoh's household, the princes, the, the powerful people, the elders of all the people. So not just of Pharaoh's household, but all the important people in the, in the whole country of Egypt. And Joseph went and all his brothers and all this big, huge entourage is marching north out of Egypt, heading back into the promised land. Does that sound familiar? Think about this from the perspective of who he's writing this to. Moses is writing this to the Israelites as they have left Egypt. And so what this sounds like is it's kind of like an anti-Exodus. It's kind of like a backwards Exodus. Because in the Exodus, Exodus it's the Egyptians who are weeping the loss. Right? Because the Passover has happened and their firstborn have all died. And so all of Egypt is weeping because there's not a household where somebody hasn't died. And so the Israelites leave and they're heading out in joy because they're set free. But the Egyptians are weeping. Here, everybody's weeping. They're, they're, they stop. As a matter of fact, the, the sorrow gets so much they have to stop and weep because of uh, Jacob's death. The next thing is... In the Hebrew Exodus, in the Exodus that these folks are familiar with, Israel is the ones who left Egypt. They're the ones who walked out. The Egyptians didn't come with them. They came after them. But it was only the, the, um, the Israelites who were heading north towards, uh, towards the, Canaan, the land of Canaan. And here they have this large entourage going with them. In, Mo, in the Exodus, in the 12 plagues that hit the country, Moses continually refused to leave behind their herds, their flocks, and their children. Pharaoh, after a couple of times of getting beat up, Pharaoh finally said, okay, you can go, but only the men. And he refused. What happens here is it says their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in Goshen because this was not the Exodus, but it kind of feels like it. And then finally, it's the Egyptians who followed the Hebrews out of Egypt, but they died in the Red Sea, didn't they? And who died in the Red Sea? It was Pharaoh and his chariots. Here in verse 9, it says that the chariots and the horsemen of Egypt accompanied them. So it's this kind of a backwards look at the Exodus. And um, it kind of anticipates where the Exodus would lead, which was it was never intended to only be the Israelites. It was never intended to just cut off everybody else. It was always intended to bring in the nations. So we kind of get a foretaste here. But it's, this isn't it, because their children and their flocks are still there. They're going to have to go back. So they head up, and they get to this place called Atad. And at Atad, they, they come across this place called Abel Mazarim. Mazarim is the Hebrew word for Egyptian, or for Egypt. So think about this from the, the Israelites' perspective. As they're heading into the wilderness, they come across this place called Atad, and there's a threshing floor there, and they know that the name of it is the morning of the Egyptians. That's what Abel Mazarim means, is the morning of the Egyptians. And so Moses, in a way here, stops and he points at that and he says, do you know why that's called the morning of the Egyptians? Do you know what, where it got that name? It's not because the Egyptians got beaten in a battle there. It's because they were mourning your father Jacob. It was because the Egyptians were mourning the death of Israel. 
And for them to hear that, these are former slaves now wandering in a wilderness to hear, wait, the Egyptians mourned us? I thought we were their slaves. And what, what Moses is telling him is, no, you have to remember that you didn't go there as slaves. You went there as celebrated guests, as the, the, the invitees of the most, second most powerful man in all of Egypt. That's why at this spot here in the promised land, they stopped and they wept for your grandfather. Don't forget who you are. He reminds them of that. Now, I said this section was talking about God's covenant. And the reason I said that is because after they stop at Abel Mizraim, the next thing that's brought up is that they go to the land of Canaan, to the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, where Abraham brought the field. So at this point, the only thing that the covenant family owns in the promised land is a, is a cemetery. And that's where they head. But he brings up again this, this idea that Abraham bought it. So why is it that they need to remember who they are? Why is it that Israel has to remember that they were brought into Egypt as guests, that the Egyptians mourned, bitterly mourned the death of the patriarch? It's because they need to remember that God made a covenant with them. God established his covenant with Abraham, and with Abraham there was the promise that they would come back to the promised land. And that's why uh, Jacob wanted to be buried there is because that's where the promise was. That's where his family was. That's where Abraham was buried. That's where Rebekah was buried. That was where Leah was buried. That's where he wanted to return, was to this promised land. That's where he wanted in the day of the resurrection, when the dead and the uh, stand back up in life, he wanted to stand next to Father Abraham at the resurrection. And so that's where he, he desires to be um, interred. That's where he wants to be buried. So this idea is a reminder also to Israel and to us that God made covenant. Our God is a covenant-making God. Now, if you remember way back when we talked about it, I said what a covenant is, is it's an oath-bound promise. It's simply God promising, I'm going to do this, and then binding himself in an oath. Now, why would God bind himself in an oath? Is there a danger he's going to break his covenant? Not in your life. So he's not binding himself in, a, in an oath to a covenant for his benefit, so it must be for ours. He's reminding us that he is a God who is faithful. And so this picture of them in this kind of backward mini exodus is reminding Israel wandering in the des desert, your God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Because don't forget what part of that covenant was. In Acts, or in, uh, I'm already preaching Acts, how about that? That's not till next week. In Genesis 15, uh, verse 13 says, Then the Lord said to Abram, For certain, or know for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That was part of the covenant promise, is your offspring will be in a land that's not their own, they will be afflicted for 400 years. Not forever, but for 400 years. And when that 400 years is up, I promise to bring them back out. And so that's what Israel's walking in, is they're walking in this covenant promise. They are now delivered from Egypt. You need to remember who your God is. He is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, promising God who fulfills on his promises. Don't forget that. Don't forget who you are. You are the recipients of God's covenant. You are the recipient of God's promises. You are not slaves. You are not defeated people. You are not 
overrun by the powers that are arrayed against you, you march out of Egypt with your head high. That's who you are. That's, that's who we have as a God, and that's who uh, we are as his people. So the next part um, is, if I can be honest, is the part I've really been looking forward to preaching. <laughs> this is God's rule. This is an example of how, how God rules over the nations. And so what happens is they have left Egypt, they've gone up, they buried Jacob, and now they've come back into Egypt, and the brothers say, well, dad's gone. Joseph's going to zap us. We know it's coming. He's, he's got to be ticked off at what we did. He's been really nice up to this point, but get, dad's gone. Does that sound familiar? Jacob and Esau. Jacob, who decided to steal everything, stole his brother's birthright, stole his brother's blessing, and then his mother heard Esau saying, well, as soon as dad's dead, I'm killing Jacob. That was the plan. And so she says, dude, you got to leave and go up to Haran and go find a wife, but don't come back until I tell you that Esau's cool. That's the same thing that's happening here. It runs in the family. Dad's gone. He's probably going to kill us. He's the most powerful guy we know. We're probably dead. And so they go to him and they say, um, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we've did to him. Do you hear what they just said? They're paranoid. They're a little worried, but they just confessed all the evil we did to him. They're not trying to sugarcoat it. They're not trying to yeah, but they simply say, look, we did something that was really wicked to our brother, and it may be that he's going to zap us for it because they probably have a sense of the guilt of what they've done. They did do it. They're not, they're not shying away from it. Like I said previously, these are different people. The, the brothers that we saw throw Joseph in a pit were wicked. They had no remorse. Reuben was trying to work a deal, but it was only so that he could try to maybe get his birthright back, try to make up to dad for sleeping with his concubine. What we see now is these guys are not shying away. They're not explaining away. They're simply saying, look, we did evil, and, and it's going to come back and bite us. And, and that's kind of the natural way for people to think about evil. We generally are um, into karma, whether we know it or not. I had a bad day because I didn't do my Bible study this morning. Um, I got into this accident because, you know, I cheated on my taxes or something. And we, we, we I think, default to karma. Is karma how the universe operates? Good heavens, I hope not. We're in trouble if it is. There's something better going on here. So these guys are operating on karma. They're thinking he's going to get us because we got him. So they went, they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. So they, did that happen? Now, are they lying at this point? I don't know. <laughs> it, it's entirely possible. Where has the focus of this chapter, or this section of, of um, Genesis been? It's been solely on Joseph. So it, this may have actually happened. Jacob didn't step back into the center spotlight in this story until he went to bless his brothers, or bless the, his sons. So he may have actually told him this. We don't know. Is it out of character for these guys to lie? Well, tragically, no, it's not. But there's really no reason to suppose at this point that they are lying. Maybe they're, they're beefing up the truth a little bit or something. 
Um, why didn't this come up earlier? Why didn't Jacob just tell him? Who knows? You know what? Ultimately, it doesn't matter if they're making this up or if it's true. It's actually an accurate statement. Is Jacob would have been happy for them to be together again. Listen to Joseph's response. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. They come before Joseph and they bow down. Does that sound familiar? Joseph had a dream that they would do it. The first time they came and they bowed down to him, they didn't know who he was. Now they're bowing down to their brother, which is exactly what the dream was, is you, you guys are all going to bow down to me. And they did. They said, behold, your servants. They got mad at him because he, they said, oh, are you going to rule over us? You're going to be our boss? And now, all of these years later, you look at it and you go, yes, yes, I am. This was the, the promise that God made to Joseph in the dream. And so Joseph looks back at the situation and he, he reminds them, you intended evil against me. He doesn't say, oh, you guys made a bad choice or, you know, it was, uh, it was my daddy loves me t-shirt that I was wearing. It's all my fault. He looks him right in the face and he says, you intended evil. No pulling of punches. For there to be real biblical gospel reconciliation, the first thing is there has to be acknowledgement of sin on both sides. The brothers say the evil that we did. Joseph looks at them right in the face and says the evil that you did. But that's not the end of the story. Because his, the way he interprets it, he said, you intended it for evil, but God. Aren't those the two greatest words in the Bible? But God. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Now, look at Joseph's life. Joseph has this dream. His brothers hate him. So when he goes out into the field to follow him and find out what's going on, after he's already tattled on them, by the way, they go, oh, we'll take care of this dreamer, and they throw him in a pit. Now, if you were in that pit with Joseph, if you were sitting in that pit with Joseph and they said, and you asked, uh, Joseph, why has this evil happened to you? Do you think Joseph would have looked and said, well, obviously God's going to raise me up to be the head of uh, Egypt and I'm going to save the world. At that point, Joseph would have looked at you and said, I haven't a clue. I didn't do anything. And then when they fish him out of that and they sell him into slavery to the Ishmaelites, if you were on that, that caravan with him and you looked at Joseph and you said, Joseph, why are you in slavery? What did you do? Would he have been able to explain the entire situation? His response would be, I haven't a clue. I haven't done anything. My own brothers, my own flesh and blood sold me into slavery. This isn't right. Then he gets bought by Potiphar and he rises up in Potiphar's house and, hey, things are going well. Maybe God's happy with me again. And then his wife takes notice of Joseph and he winds up in prison. Now, if you're in prison with Joseph, if you're sitting in that cell with him and you look at him and say, Joseph, what happened? Everything was going so well. What, what's going on? Do you think he would say, oh, no, no problem. God's got this all figured out. I'm heading to glory. This is going to be great. He would sit in that cell and look at you and go, I don't know. Again, I didn't do anything. I tried to be honorable. I tried to be good. And look where I'm at. And then you get another glimmer of hope as those two 
um, officials from Pharaoh's household come in, and they have dreams, and Joseph interprets for him. And even in the middle of that, he said, look, when you're restored, you're going to lose your head. When you're restored, would you remember me to Pharaoh? And, and the, the cupbearer says, you got it, dude. Um, I'm your ticket. And then two years later, you're sitting in that cell going, Joseph, what happened? I thought we had a way out. Would Joseph say, oh, it's because God's not ready to elevate me just yet? He wouldn't have a clue. It's only after all of these years of hardship, of trial, and he's had a harder life than we will, of hardship, of trial, of difficulty, that Joseph can look back at his life and go, that was evil, but God brought good out of it. That was horrible. My brothers were dead wrong for selling me, but God brought me into this for a purpose. I'm standing here so that I can save all the world by, by interpreting Pharaoh's dream. He doesn't, he doesn't back away from that problem of why do good people suffer? And, and in the writing of Genesis, where is Joseph's sin? There isn't any. He's presented only in the best of light. So if you want to ask why do, why do bad things happen to good people, Joseph is about the best case we have. Now, I'm not saying that Joseph was sinless. There's only one person who was sinless, and they killed him. Joseph was Joseph, but the way he's portrayed is he's a good man. He has done honorably in everything that we see presented for us. Why did he suffer? You see, it's really easy to talk about God and the problem of evil, of why, why do bad things happen in the world if God is all good, when we're talking in the abstract, when it's a person or a category of people, it's a lot harder to discuss it when we get down to brass tacks and we put a face on that. And we look at Joseph and we say, here's a case of a man who actually suffered horrible things and in the end came out and said, God intended it for good. It's not a theory at this point. It is Joseph's life experience it is the way Joseph is interpreting everything that's happened in his life as God intended it for good. Is it good for brothers to sell brothers into slavery? It is not. It has never been. God intended that action for good. Is it good for a woman to try to seduce a man and then falsely accuse him so he winds up in prison? It is not good. It has never been good. God intended that for good. So that's the, 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 the tr struggle we have here is this, there's, there's reality of evil and the reality of God's good purpose through it. And for that, we have to go back to the beginning of the Bible. We have to go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Remember what happened when God created everything? As he's creating in those six days of creation, he said, this is good, this is good, this is good. When everything was done, he looked at it and he said, it's all very good. God had a purpose when he created the world. And when it was finished, being put together, it wasn't perfect, but it was very good. And in the midst of that, sin breaks in. Sin destroys relationships. Sin turns us inwards, bends us in on ourselves, and makes us want to take care of ourselves first and foremost. Did that defeat God? Did that frustrate his plan? And now he's just like, well, I don't know what to do with him. Even through that, God's hand is still working and bringing about good, even though there's evil in the world. So who is your God? Is he defeated by Egyptians? Is he defeated by brothers? Is he defeated by lies? Absolutely not. He works those things, as evil as they are, together for our good, for his purposes.
to glorify himself, to accomplish great things. Joseph suffered greatly so that he could save the world. And, and the ultimate picture of that is his glorious son, Jesus Christ, born into the world, to, uh, uh, not to kings and palaces, but to just a poor Hebrew girl. And he walks in the world sinlessly, doing good all the time. And they crucified him. Now, at that point, would Jesus say, well, wow, that was terrible. They should have never done that. That's not right. Jesus looked at it and he said, in three days, I'm going to be crucified. Or in, 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 when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. He knew what was coming. And it was still Jesus in the garden praying with, blood, with uh, sweat dropping off him like drops of blood. Lord, if it's possible, let this pass from me. So don't ever downplay the reality of suffering. Don't ever downplay the impact of evil in somebody's life. The best man who ever lived suffered under that, that weight of that, knowing what was coming, but endured it because he saw the glory that waited on the other side. Because our God is sovereign and evil can't frustrate him. So keep in mind that this is God's perfect plan, his purpose, his rule in the universe is not defeated by our sin. It may make our life a little rougher, but it's not going to stop God accomplishing what he's working on. And the thing to keep in mind is what we've just heard, God intended this for good, did not come from some theologian sitting in some cozy office at some university where he's got tenure. Who just said that? The victim of the evil. The man who suffered directly under it is the one who said, God intended this for good. That's incredible. That's a witness that will stand up. It, like I said, it's easy to theorize. It's easy to kind of, you know, stand in the abstract. But when you're in the shoes or the sandals of the man who's suffering and he says, God intended this for good, you need to stop and listen. He's got something to say. He's got some experience with it. So what's God doing about this evil? He created the world. He said it was very good. Then sin broke in. What's his plan here? Well, in Genesis 3.15, as he's cursing the serpent for issuing in sin, he promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He'd be wounded in the process, but he was going to do it. Then in Genesis chapter 4, when Adam and Eve have children, they name their first one Cain, which is got him. We got the man. And then when they have a second one, they name him Abel, which is, oh yeah, futility, vanity, an extra, superfluous, one more. They thought they had got the promised seed of the woman when they got Cain. Um, unfortunately not. When Noah was born, why do they call him Noah? Noah means rest. It sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. So the people look and they say, Noah's born. Noah's the one who's going to give us rest. The ground's been cursed because of Adam, because of his sin. Noah's the one. All throughout this primordial history, they're looking for that one. They're anticipating the one who's going to come and fix the damage that was done. Then we get to Abraham, and in Abraham's seed, all the nations will be blessed. That's why we went to Galatians, is because there Paul tells us that seed's singular. It is a person. It's not seed as in posterity. There is one person who's coming. When Jacob blessed his sons last week, we heard, out of Judah is one who's coming, and he will, be, he will rule the nations. So there's that continuing promise of this one person who's going to come and fix it. And so that's what God is going to do about this evil. And when Jesus came, he didn't come and say, okay, evil be gone, and wave his hands. 
He said, evil, bring it on. He took the brunt. He took the worst that the evil had to give to him. He succumbed to it, and then he stood right back up over it. And he said, now your, your tools are broken. So this is our God. This is the promise, the covenant that he's offered to us is this covenant of eternal life. He is defeating his enemies, and he is, in the course of time, bringing about his purposes in the world. This is God's rule over all the nations. This is God's rule over all the universe. Sin will be put down. Death will be finished. Hell will be thrown into a lake of fire because God is sovereign. That's who our God is. So God intended it for good. Um, and I think the important part is God intended. God didn't figure out. God didn't come up with plan B. God intended these evil actions to be for his good. So for example, in Acts chapter 4, see I told you I'm preaching Acts already. Acts chapter 4, after Peter and James have been released, the church gathers and prays, and part of what they said is, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand had planned and predestined to take place. God's purpose in sending Jesus was that he would be crucified. God intended. God didn't make up. He intended his purposes, and he brought them about. And so just like Joseph was the savior of the world through his suffering, Jesus, likewise, is the Savior of the world through his suffering. Romans chapter 5 talks about the, the juxtaposition of uh, Adam and Jesus and how one brought destruction and one brought life. And part of what Paul says is, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but which sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the man that is promised in, in uh, the fall, in, in Genesis 3. That's the man that the, the ancients were looking for. That's the one promised as a blessing to the nations. And through the evil that was sent on him, he saves the world. That's a huge promise. This is who our God is. Remember who your God is. Don't forget. This is the God who's working for you on your behalf throughout all the universe. It's easy to forget who God is. You have to struggle not to. And don't forget who you are. Because God made a covenant, and covenant means two parties. So God, in his infinite power, his infinite wisdom, made a covenant with you. That's who you are. You've got this God working on your behalf. And so the last section is, talks about God's faithfulness. And it's Joseph's death. It records Joseph's death. Uh, Joseph got to live to be 110 years old. He got to see his children's children's children. That's a huge blessing to see grandchildren's grandchildren. It, it was just amazing what God did for Joseph after all the evil that he faced. But in the midst of it, Joseph says, God will surely visit you, and you shall surely carry my bones from here. Joseph is remembering God's covenant. 
You're going to be here for 400 years. You're going to be enslaved. But when you go, and you will surely go, you pick up my bones and you carry them back to the promised land with me. He didn't want to be buried there. He's anticipating, he's looking forward to the future when those people, those physical beings are going to pick up a box with his bones in there and walk out of Egypt and walk into the promised land. He is banking everything on God's faithfulness to his covenant at this point. I, am, I believe with everything, Lord, that you are going to lead these people out of Egypt. I don't know how and I won't be there, but I want my bones to go with them. Now, did that happen? Actually, yes, it did. Exodus 13, 19 says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones with you from here. Moses, on the way out of Egypt, stops and grabs the ossuary, the box of bones, and says, come on, Joseph, you're going with us. And Joseph attends them on the Exodus as they march out of Egypt. Well, that's out of Egypt. Did he wind up in the promised land? Joshua 24, 32. As for the bones of Joseph, which the peoples of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the, place, in the piece of land that Jacob bought for the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Jacob. Joseph is counting on God being faithful. And even after Joseph is dust, what happens? God's faithful. His bones are trotted back up into the promised land. He gets to participate in that covenant blessing of entering the promised land by having his bones go up there for him. Joseph was anticipating and looking forward to God's faithfulness. He knew God would not let him down. He knew God had sworn to his people that he would deliver them, that they would inherit the promised land at some point. And so Joseph goes with them into the promised land. That's banking on, that's counting on, Joseph, on God's faithfulness. These have been the themes that have been flowing through the book of Genesis the whole time we've been studying it. Is who God is. He's not a territorial God. He's not the God of Canaan. He's, he's mightier than the God of Egypt, than the God of Assyria, than the God of Mesopotamia, than the God of America. He is sovereign over all. He rules. He created it all. Even the things that we worship in the place of God. He made it all. That's who our God is. And in the middle of the sin and the brokenness, because do you notice what bookends this chapter? A funeral and more death. Even in the midst of that, God is saying, I'm sovereign over these things. I will, you will go into the promised land, whether you're alive when it happens or just bones. You're coming to the promised land. We have to remember who we are. We're not defeated, minor little people. I read an um, uh, editorial this week that just really made me angry because it was saying, oh, we poor Christians in America, we're so persecuted, we're so opposed. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. There's a, there's a pastor who was recently jailed in another country as a terrorist. You can't look at this and say, oh, poor us. That's the adopting the world's mindset. That's looking at what the world is saying around us. Christians are stupid, redneck, backwards people who don't know anything. They deny science. They don't understand any of this stuff. And if you begin to buy into that picture of who you are, you're buying into a lie. We are God's people. We have been called 
for his purposes, according to his promise. And there is nothing in this world we need to fear. Science, politics, money, prison, none of it. Because he, we're his people. He has covenanted to be with us. So don't adopt a defeatist attitude just because America is turning in a different direction. We still have a sovereign God who rules. And that's what the book of Genesis is reminding us. You are not slaves. You're not slaves to the American system. You're not slaves to the sin that resides in your heart. You're not slaves to the ideals that other people put on you. You have been liberated. You have walked out of Egypt because your God is sovereign. They meant it for evil, but your God meant it for good. That is the message of the book of Genesis told in story form for us. And the great thing about story form is it has faces. These are people. This is not theory. This is individuals who walked on this earth. Joseph was a real person because he had to have bones to be carried out of Egypt, didn't he? He was a real guy. So that's the picture that God paints for us by telling us stories is this actually happened. This occurred to real people in real time. And a real God was sovereign over all of it. That's the book of Genesis. That's the, the nature of what Genesis is teaching us. Don't forget who God is and don't forget who you are. And I think it's kind of cool that the next book we're going to look at is Acts. And it's more narrative, isn't it? It's more storytelling. God didn't stop telling stories. We are story-formed creatures. What's one of the biggest industries in the world, especially here in California, kind of over the hill down below a little bit? they got a big word on a hill. Hollywood. We love stories. We love to see, we, we want to go see movies that tell stories. We read a lot of books that tell stories. We are story-formed creatures. So next comes the book of Acts, where we take Luke, chapter, or Luke volume 2 and step into that story and say, how does that flow into our lives now? So it's good that Genesis is a story. It, it, it was, I think it was really a, a joy to go through that. I hope you got something out of it. I hope you enjoyed it as well. And the most important thing is I hope your confidence in your God is bolstered because you've watched what he's done. He is sovereign. And therefore, we can walk as his people in confidence. So let's pray.